that time now once again For getting lumped up with my friends It's rock a mic And Rob that you should know And you'll find them here on the rock show in his sights then anyway okay but if you if you look at the nina antonia book about the dolls and some other things that have been written about johnny thunders and stuff like that they 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 write rick out now on the conversely sylvain before he passed away came out with a book called there's no bones and ice cream about his life yeah and he and he really uh wrote some very nice things about Rick. And also in Paul Stanley's book recently that he wrote about four years ago, uh, he mentioned the Bratz and and how they gave him their first gig in the city and all that stuff, said great things. But, yeah, I mean, this happens where bands try to rewrite their own history. And I just don't understand the animosity yeah. attached to this by, by some no, of the fans. I don't get it. I don't want to understand why the fans are so – you know, like that. It's like, you know, I, I go to post something to share something and, and, and there'll be some idiot asshole coming in. Oh, here's Rick Fox again for talking about himself. Yeah. It's like, I, I can't win for losing. But, you know, I, I, everything else that's happened in your life, the wasp is just a four month period. Okay. Right. That, you know, you've, you know, again, you've had this interesting, very interesting period even before you were in wasp. And then afterwards, I mean, you know, you would end up in Steeler, okay, yep. and uh, record the first album with them. Want to tell us a little bit about that? You know, coming from New York, especially without, you know, uh, advanced press or, or internet or anything like that, back when I did, you know, it's all word of mouth. So when I come out in the New York rock scene, it's just, you know, I can't prove who I was or what I did to the people in California. There's right. nothing really to back it up. I could just say, well, I worked with Thor and other guys in Kiss. You know, uh, uh, I worked for a lot of bands at Gildersleeves doing lights. That that don't mean squat, duly squat to people in California. That's like so far removed. Right. They have no idea what that's like. You might as well be the other side of the universe. They don't know what that is. Yeah. You know, the only time you, we, each coast would see what's going on was like pictures in Rock Scene magazine. That's the only way you'd know. Yeah. You know, like yeah. that. So. Uh, I mean, that's how I found out about Rodney Bingenheimer, and and he had a haircut like the like Keith and the Bratz. Right, exactly. <laughs> so, uh, uh, and 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 California had a, a space band called Zolar X. Uh huh. And they looked like they looked like uh, th- those those star and Star Trek, the creatures with the with the blonde hair and, and uh, right with the antennas, with the antennas yeah. sticking up. Yep. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, so each coast had its own space band too. Okay. <laughs> that's true. But but anyway, so so uh, um, where was I going with this? Uh, so uh, trying to prove who I was and what I did was was a little difficult, you know, like that to to help me get gay. I, I, once I got out of Wasp, I was like stranger in a strange land. I'm on another planet. I'm cut loose. How do I network? I don't know anybody. Did you think about coming back to New York? Did you, you know, that or you you were going to stay there no matter what? It 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 passed my mind really quick. Yeah. I was going to be like, all right, what am I going to go back to? Mm. You know, pl- playing a, playing a, a covers in the clubs. How how many years can I do that? You know, 
uh, I, I don't, I don't know. So I just decided to stay in California and I was trying to network and meet bands. I had auditioned for rat. I auditioned hmm. for, I auditioned for the Greg Leon invasion. Uh, one of the loudest guitar players you ever heard. Um, I auditioned for, I, I jammed with Hellion. Uh, there were various, various bands I was trying to just get known with. And, and now I have to try and learn their stuff like on a dime. You know, in, in, in an audition like that, uh, 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 Stephen Pierce, he gave me a, a, a cassette demo of the Wasp of the, of the Rat songs, but with no lyrics on it. So I had something to learn. Right. Uh, right. But me and Blotzer didn't get along because he likes bass players to play with their fingers. And I was using a pick. So uh, go figure, you know, uh, like that. Anyway, so uh, I put an ad in Music Connection magazine, funnily enough. And I said, you know, bass player worked, you know, I know Kiss. I worked with Thor from out of out from new york blah 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 like that and i got a call from ron peel now i had just seen steeler at the roxy uh with the original lineup his lineup that came out from nashville mm -hmm. and and they were all very good musicians technically speaking everybody brought something great to the table but ron was the only guy that had that superstar image the superstar look i said that guy's gonna be famous you know, like that, and I'm 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 standing there with with Eric Carr. But we're watching Steeler. Really? Okay. Yeah. Wow. And okay. and uh, and Eric Eric was asking me if I would set him up on a date with a girl that I had briefly dated while I was in Wasp. <laughs> Turns out she was the model on the cover of the Poison album. Open up and say, Ah, years later. Oh, okay. Wow. 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 <laughs> what a sweet yeah. world. So yeah, and I hate to have to paint it. Uh, anyway, <laughs> uh, anyway, but uh, so anyway, so Eric and I are watching Steeler, and I'm like, wow, these did it really loud. They're, they're a great band, hard rock, you know, simple stuff, like like yeah. rock, heavy, 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 like that. And so, so had not having met Ron yet, he calls me up and and contacts me and says, uh, I you know, you're, I heard your name around, and, and you got to look, and blah, 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 and I'm getting ready. Here we go again. I'm going to replace somebody else's bass player uh, like that. And, and he says, come and meet me. And I went to what they call the Steeler Mansion, which was a bunch of gutted storefronts full of roaches. Oh, shit. Uh, so, so calling it Steeler Mansion was kind of an inside joke. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, and it was in, a, it was in like, a, a really bad part of town. It wasn't quite South Central, but it was almost that. Yeah. And and like that. So I walk in and it's like I said, it's, it's a sh culture shock. Three gutted storefronts with just the support walls. You know, they had a rehearsal room. Yeah. Uh, you know, Ron was Ron was sleeping on, on some milk crates with a mattress and with a curtain around it. Like that really oh, spark, wow. extremely spark. It was no no rock star lifestyle here at this place. You know, so uh, I go and sit. Uh, Ron sits on the drum riser. And I'm, and I'm like, OK, where's the gear? There's, there's like no gear. There's no. These guys came fully equipped. Their own truck, their own PA system, their own lighting, and 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 the road crew. The whole. They were self-contained. A lot right. of bands, a lot of bands from the southeast and the east coast. You know, doing like like White Tiger and those bands. They all carry their own stuff. They were self-supported. Yeah. I walk in. There's nothing there. So what happened? To everything. Ron says, "Well, I, I fired the band." I said, "That that's a big leap of faith, considering how big you guys are." Jeez. He says, "Well, we That's can't compete. Crazy. We wow. can't compete with bands like Rat and Motley Crue. I, I gotta, I gotta up my game, you know. And and you've got an image, uh, you know. People said, check this guy Rick Fox out. He looks like a rock star. And Ron goes, That's what I want. I want a band full of rock stars. Wow. So he says, he says, here's a demo. Learn these songs. 
no promises. We'll see what happens after that. Now, was was Ingve in there yet? No, nope. this is before that. Nope, nope. He just Rod had just fired the whole band. Yeah, so it was like right within that same time frame. Was was Ingve on his was Ingve on his radar, or he didn't even know about him yet at that point? Shortly after, from what I remember, shortly after. Yeah, yeah. Wow. We, just lost, we just lost Rob. Yeah, he'll come back. That always right. happens. He's a he's like a boomerang. He'll be back. Oh, totally, totally. Uh, so anyway, so I I took the demo home. I I, I learned the songs. I, I I go back to the the play and Ron and I just sit down one on one, face to face like that. Right. And and I'm, we're going over the songs, going over the songs. Go there he is, Rob. Going over the songs. <laughs> Apparently, it, it was something he liked. He says. Uh, our, our, our new drummer is coming back from Texas shortly. When he comes back, we'll rehearse three piece. I said, "All right, that was Mark Edwards, because right. uh, Mark had Mark had been the new drummer that just came in, right. wow. and and Mark was like Tommy Aldridge, and they're both like you know from Texas like that. So they they had a similar look and similar playing style. Yeah. So uh, uh, we finally get to to we get some amps, we plug in, and and we start rehearsing that way, you know, and and of course. I understand why, you know, you don't want to be overly friendly to a guy that might not work out, you know, when you're going to audition. So Mark was a little distant at, at first like that. Um, but, you know, we went over to set several times over and over and over and over again like that. And it got really tight. Uh, Mark was the first guy that, that taught me about actually listening to the rhythm section and where, where the beat is. You know, and I was playing, I mean, coming from Jersey, the, the cover circuit, I'm not listening for our head of the beat, behind the beat, you know, all the technical yeah, no. stuff. I'm, I'm playing Sabbath. I'm playing Rush. I'm playing whatever's, uh, you know. You, you know these songs. Yeah. yeah. So now I'm playing originals, playing somebody else's originals. It's like, to me, it's just copying it. But he says, he goes, and and, and Mark took the time to, to integrate with me as a bass player so we would lock in as, as a machine. Yeah. Like that. And and we I, I say we got to a point where, we were so in the pocket. We were so in your pocket, you wouldn't know your change was gone. <laughs> you know? we were, we were like, that's that's the real rhythm section right there. We were so tight, you couldn't slip a piece of paper in there. That's, wow, that's you know? great wow. change. Like that, and and then, so we rehearsed that way, three piece, three piece, three piece. This was uh, well. Uh, Ron Ron told me I was officially in the band on December twenty eighth, nineteen eighty two, uh, my birthday at the Rainbow. Mm -hmm. So. Uh, it was like six, six, seven months after I was out of Wasp. I finally I, I landed a gig in one of the biggest cornerstone metal bands in Los Angeles at the time. That's amazing. Like that. Wow. So, so uh, uh, by the beginning of January, Ron was already on the phone with Varney. They had already been talking. Shrapnel records, yeah. Right, right. And and apparently Ron Ron said he he had been discussing Ingve uh, with with Varney. I didn't know about it at the time. I, I thought the first time we talked was. On a, on a three-way phone conference with Ingve over in Sweden and, and with Mike Varney, yeah, uh, like that. And and Ingve sounded like a real you know gung ho, hard charging guy, highly motivated. You know, I want to come to LA. I want to play in your band, and I want to be part of it, and, and like that. He was, he was uh, very encouraging to hear somebody who really was like, I I'm chomping at the bit to come play in your band. And and we had heard his demo. You know, we're sitting there looking at each other. I mean, the only thing you could compare that to at the time was Eddie Van Halen. Yeah. You know, or maybe George Lynch. That was the only, the only guy, yeah. the only two guys that I knew of that could noodle like that, right? You know, up and down the neck, and 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 sweeping wow. arpeggios and all of this stuff. I I'd, I'd never heard stuff like that. Yeah. You know? So uh, we arranged to have Ingrid fly out from Sweden, 
Dee Dee Keel who worked at the whiskey was a, a booking agent was helping us. She was going out with Ron at the time. So mm -hmm. uh, she cut the, the tape on the state department, get him to come over like that. And, and the guy that got off the plane was not the same guy that we talked to on the phone. I mean, it was just like the Viking has landed with attitude. Oh, you know? Yeah. And, and he's, he's like, you know, I'm into six, six, six and you know, devil and, yeah. devil with this and, and paranormal at UFOs and psychic and, and witchcraft and like I maybe he was trying to scare us. I don't know because he's trying to. <laughs> he, was only, he was only nineteen, you know. I was I was twenty seven. I was the oldest guy in Steeler. Yeah. Yeah. Ron was like twenty two. Yeah. Wow. So uh, so uh, so you know, Ingve Ingve got to experience the same thing I did. The culture shock when he walked into the Steeler Mansion and saw what 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 a dump it was that we lived in. So uh, <laughs> and and, and that's a, the, the bed, he, the place he got to sleep in was was off to the side. There was a kitchen, and that's where all the roaches hung out because the stove was there. Oh. And he had to sleep on a he had to sleep on a water bed that somebody left behind. Oh my god! And Joe's like that. Apartment. What's that? Joe's apartment. Joe's apartment. Joe's apartment. Yeah, <laughs> Joe's apartment. yeah exactly. <laughs> at, at, at night, if you go in there and before you turn the lights on, if you try to turn on the gas on the stove, you can hear all this little. Tippity tapping sounds hitting the floor. Yeah. That's all the roaches running out of the stove ah. and jumping down to the floor. Oh god! Wow! You can hear them hitting hit the newspapers. They were trying to get out of the channels with a gas get out of the way like that. So anyway, uh, uh, we we get to the point of plugging in, you know, and act. Let's see what what where this is going to go. And and uh, and he was everything and more, you know, right there live in in front of your face like that. But you know, if you know Steeler songs, you know you know how simple and straight ahead and driving they are. Yeah, this is not rocket science. Just, you know, if I, I I couldn't play anything different. If my bass playing was was too complex, I play it wouldn't be Steeler music. I had to play pretty much what Ron said the music calls for. That's what I did. Yeah, you know, and 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 uh, you know, I don't you don't play against the music like that. You know, I don't write. I couldn't write complex bass lines. It was no no place for it. Yeah. So Game again, you got, you got guys saying play simpler, play simpler. Okay, I already heard that once. I'm hearing it again. So so uh, we got to the point where we're playing, rehearsing, and in between songs, we stop for a second, take a breath, a breather. Ingrid says to Ron, "Hey, man." Is there anything you can do with these songs? I mean, to make them a little, a little cooler because I mean, absolutely, they're like they they're fucking boring. Oh, and and uh, Ron just stood there, did a slow burn. If you know what that is, yeah, it was the fastest slow burn I ever seen. It just went nuts, right? It turned red in seconds. Oh, and I looked up at Mark on a drum riser, and Mark looks at me, and Mark's kind of like looked away up at the ceiling, and I, I'm thinking, did did new guy just say what we thought he said? He just insulted the boss's songs. Jesus. You know? And and, and Ron, Ron's like, okay, man. All right. All right. We'll see. Next day, we can start auditioning other guitar players. <laughs> right, in front of, right in front of Malmsteen. Wow. Right in front of him, right? For, wow. the next, for the next, about the next week, we're auditioning other guitar players. And, and, and you know, they weren't quite getting it, getting the songs, but uh, I mean, anything compared to Momstein is going to be sub sound like it's substandard. But yeah, these guys were trying, but it just wasn't catching on. 
Yeah. It, it finally got to a point where Malmsteen goes, "All right, look, I'll play the game. Let's let's get this. Let's do this." All right. Yeah. And he, we settled down, and and the rest came out, and it was magic. And and we we fucking kicked ass. Yeah. Like that. You know? that, that first Steeler record is classic. I mean, everybody. My my West Coast debut. Uh, uh, hang on, hang on, that right here. Okay. I don't know if this is going to be backwards on your screen. No, it's straight. You, yep, I got you. Steeler, Johnny Copeland. Right there. That was that was my debut gig in L.A. Opening for Hughes Thrall. Okay. Wow. It's and, amazing. Uh, and uh, that's you know uh, um, Glenn Hughes and Pat Thrall. Right. I, I don't remember if Frankie Benelli was playing drums with them. People have asked me that. I don't remember. The night went by like a blur. Mm -hmm. It was just too much for me to process and, and yeah. remember everything. Um, um, but I remember during the – well, we're on stage. <clears throat> curtain starts to go up, and there goes my mic stand with the curtain. <laughs> Carrying it up? Oh, yeah, because they had these heavy velvet curtains at the country club <laughs> on the stage, you know, like an old movie theater. So, yeah. yeah, stop, stop, stop. You get the road – Jimmy, Jimmy had to run out, lower the curtain – Get the mic out of the way. Okay, start over. What a what a way to start. And the curtain goes up. We go on, and every the country club is packed. Everybody yeah. in the world is there, and and they're all with their jaws on. And they see they see you in here, Malmsteen. Okay, they're like looking. But if this ain't this ain't my daddy Steeler from like last month. No, Ooh. this is a little different. This is this is hardcore in your face, Steeler. This is like steamroller. You know. Yeah. Uh, uh, this is Abrams tanks coming at you. Like that, you know, and I, I look over um, stage right uh, over my shoulder, and there's Pat Thrall standing in the doorway. Yeah, mouth open, wow. watching yeah. Malmsteen. Now Pat Thrall is—that's quite an accomplished guitar yeah, player. Yeah, you're pressing I, him. Yeah, I saw him at the Palladium with with uh, Pat Travers. You know, it was it was it was the Boom Boom I Go to Lights album tour. Yeah, right, and, you know, right. Pat Thrall, Tommy Aldridge, Mars Cowley on bass, Pat Pat Travers. So. Pat Thrall was was ass kicking guitar player, um, and and he's standing in the doorway to the stage with his jaw open like that, blown away. Yeah, and and after the show, I don't know what why I never got a chance to, to meet Glenn Hughes, but I, I got to talking to Pat Thrall, and I said you might not remember me. I said but I saw you at the Palladium with Pat Travers. I was down like the front row, and then after the show I was backstage. I was hanging out with you guys. So, he goes, I thought that's where you look familiar. He goes, mm. your hair was like brown. Well, then I said, yeah, now it's black. Like, yeah. so, so Pat Thrall remembered me. Okay, that's cool. That's uh, very cool. I said, I said a few years ago, I'm watching you up on stage, rock star, and here we are sharing the same show, like that. So how cool is that? You know, and Pat was really cool about that. I said, oh, and by the way, I said I have both of your Automatic Man albums. In my collection, and he went, "Oh man, thank you. That's so that great." This, uh, that album, those albums didn't sell with. That was yeah. he was doing like like freestyle space jazz stuff. Yeah, totally yeah. different. Yeah, you know, like like sci-fi, uh, um, uh, I don't know, kind of rhythmic rock. Uh, it wasn't yeah. like that. Anyway, so I, I told him, I said, "I both your albums in my collection, and I'm a big fan like that." So that was that was kind of a highlight of, of the night. But uh, we were the talk of the town from from that night on. It was just like, holy, sh wow, this is not the same Steeler, you yeah. know. So, and, 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 you know, we did, did a lot of great gigs. Uh, we, we supported Quiet Riot 
uh, to yes. a, beyond capacity at that Perkins Palace, right in Pasadena. We we uh, we played a country club a few more times with Black and Blue. We did. Uh, we've sold out the Troubadour. The line was like out the door, down the corner, and around around the corner, up the street, like that. Amazing. So so yeah, I was at Steeler for about six months. Uh, our last show was in May of 83. First show was in March. Last show was in May. And uh, we we're supposed to have a band meeting after the show. And there was nobody there except me and the drummer. Oh, boy. Wow. You know, Ron, Ron wasn't there. Ingve wasn't there. And then, so Mark comes up to me and says, I hate to be the bear of bad news, but uh, we're folding the band and starting over. So, and that would, be, that would become Keel. Right. Not, not, not yet. No, not yet. Not yet. Uh, I said, I said, are you out? He goes, no. I said, well, Ron's not out. He goes, no. He goes, Ingve, Ingve's not here. Uh, he's already in Alcatraz. They're going to become picking him, 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 picking him and his gear up. Yeah. So, uh, and that, so that leaves me. And I said, well, what did I do? He says, I don't know. That's just what Ron wants to do. There was, there was no real closure on it. Yeah. Or, or a plausible explanation. It's just you're out of the band. You know, so so the haters, the haters run with that and go, see, Ingbe quit the band because of you, because you suck. You, you can't fucking play. So there's no, that's not true. There's no. This is the shit. This is the shit that people talk about when they want to try to get attention for themselves. You know, yeah. and, and and so social media makes all that worse too. You know what I mean? People. Yeah, I, I talked to Ron media. about. That. I talked to Ron. We we played together since you know several times, and I I talked mm -hmm. to Ron about that. He goes, he goes, yeah, but. If there was no band meeting, then how could you be out of the band? I said, "Well, that's what Mark told me." He goes, "Yeah, but you're you're the bass player of Steeler now. So, what does that tell you? You know, mm -hmm. you're you're back in the band." Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. I, and, and we and we did a Keel Fest in 2019 in in, uh, in uh, Columbus, Ohio. Yeah, uh, and that was great. We did a, a Steeler reunion. The reunion that the, the critics said would never happen. Right, uh, and wow. we did uh, we did a, 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 a tribute to Ronnie Dio. We did Heaven and Hell. You know, because Ron did some stuff with Sabbath, so you know, <laughs> so there'll there'll be some some uh, Sabbath stuff to, to work with with Ron once in a while, right? Uh, that. But yeah, so so I'm, I guess I'm still the bass player of Steeler for all yeah. the purposes. You know, that's great. Yeah, that's great. I want to change gears one more time. Uh, talk about exactly. Talk about. <laughs> talk about something that uh, non music related. Okay, and that's. Your your interest in Polish military history, okay, and your you know the wing the winged cavalry. Um, right. Tell us tell us how you got involved with that whole thing. Uh, <clears throat> they say if it's not fun anymore, then stop doing it. And by the time the nineties came in, uh, the music scene had changed in L.A. It was getting yeah. closer to you know. The, the, Pearl Jam, the Pearl Jam stuff. And, Pearl uh, Jam, right. and, and I'm like, you know what? I'm not going to wear oversized cargo pants. Yes. I'm not, not going to wear combat boots. Flannel shirts. Flannel shirts. I'm not going to sing about how, how ter terrible my life is because of heroin and yeah. how, much, how much rain falls in Portland. <laughs> I just can't. I, I, came from a, I came from an era where musicians you know you were like gods on stage i mean yeah. look, what I, look what i grew up with kiss angel star right. that's that's you know that's my roots you know you want you wanted to make it in those you know and yeah. that's you know and then the grunge scene comes along and it's a bunch of bands that 
act like they don't want to make it. That's all bullshit. It's all bullshit. Well, you know, the, the Hollywood scene had pretty much swallowed itself because it was so many bands all looked alike. All, they all everybody grew their hair out, so they all had that one, swing in one length thing. Yeah, and it was and they ripped jeans like that, and and it was just everybody looked like everybody looked like it was a fucking cookie cutter assembly line. Right, right. And then you had the, the Crayola bands, I call you know the the guys with the teased out hair and trying to look mm-hmm. like the dolls. And, and yeah. a lot of these bands really were not that good. I mean, they really weren't. But, you know, the kids don't, they don't know anything. The, the girls love seeing bands like that. You know, they like to take care of boys that dress like girls, you know. And we all did the couch tour. I did too. I'm guilty of that as well. But, you know, sometimes yeah. you got to do whatever you can do to be resourceful to survive. So, but the, the whole scene had just degenerated itself. And so the only other alternative was, was the whole grunge thing. But that's that's not me. I, I, yes. I, I tried it with a couple of bands. I grew my hair out and played a couple of shows with some bands, and I just wasn't that happy. So I, I wanted to take a, a hiatus away from that. I wanted to actually make some money. So I, I got involved in working in the film industry. Yeah, as a, wow. as a production assistant, a PA, right. like that. And from one thing led to another, and I elevated up real quick to like working in props. Right. With, with, with uh, you know anything an actor touches in a film is a prop. So. Uh, so I was working on films doing that stuff, and then uh, just you know, at least I had an income coming in working. And in films, you got to hustle because there's always somebody behind you that might want your job if you're not ready to work. You know, it's like that. So you got to be ready to work all the time, uh, like that. And then so one thing led to another, and I, I started hanging out, going to rena- Renaissance fairs. Right. You know, um, that was an interesting uh, thing. I, I get. Uh, my father raised me into films. A lot of guys get raised into sports. You know, with their dad, they go to the baseball games. Yeah. My dad, my dad's influence was the golden era of, of Hollywood film. Yeah. So wow. I grew up watching Errol Flynn and and, and uh, Tyrone Power and, and and all the swashbuckling, all that stuff. You know. Yeah. Um. um uh. This goes on and on. All those kind of you know. You put a sword in my hand and I'm right at home. You know, like that. I grew up watching all of that stuff. So I figured, well, maybe, you know, I could get involved in doing this. And like most people starting out rent fairs, the easiest thing to do is pirate. That's your entry level. Yeah. So I started out doing a pirate thing. And I, I played around with a couple of different pirate groups. And, and I had a knack for this thing. You know, this is, it's, now you're acting. It's like you're on stage acting. Right. You know? And you're in character like that. So, so uh, I started kind of making my, I was like the new guy that came out of nowhere, just like when I came to L.A. Here's this new guy on, on the scene. You know, and I, I try to dress the part as best as I could afford and, and work my way in little by little. And then uh, I, I was hanging out with several different other groups. That, in Renaissance fairs, we call it the Liz and Hank show because it's either about Henry VIII or Queen Elizabeth. <laughs> it's all tourist stuff, you know, it, yeah. entertains, it entertains the tourists. So there's uh, every country of, of Western Europe was represented. You got England, Spain, Germany, Italy, France, like that. And, and so I, I hooked up with and joined, uh, I got propositioned to join uh, the Royal Spanish Court. So this is like the era of Spain during the time of King Philip and the Armada. Right. This 15, group, 1500s or late 1400s? What is it? Yeah. 1500s, yeah. 1500s. Yeah, yeah. So, so uh, and this group had like 40, 50 people in it. They were, they were politically powerful in the Renaissance uh, circle movement. Like yeah. that. Wow. 
So, so I started to kind of transition over from pirate into like a, a Spanish type character. And that's when I started growing the handlebar mustache and waxing it and the little goatee. And he looked like, like one of the, the uh, D'Artagnan, you know, he looked like one of the musketeers. That's the, the look, the gentleman's look of the 16th and 17th century. Right. Like that. So and I got involved in, I was doing, we were doing stage shows with sword fighting and choreographed comedy, stuff like that on stage. So uh, I wrote, I wrote my own uh, um, segment into one of the Spanish court stage shows. And, and they, the, the, the vice president of the, of the org, of the organization, he loved what I, I pulled all these cliche lines out of all these famous films that the Errol Flynn would use and stuff like that, uh, or Alan Hale. And, and uh, I wrote that. And so, so now I'm like a full, full running member with Spanish court. Well, while all this is going on, I told my dad back in Brooklyn and I said, what was going on in Poland over at this time? And that's when he opened the doors. He they said Poland was the largest land empire of Renaissance and, and uh, Renaissance Europe. Uh, 10% of it was nobility, which was more than all of Europe combined. Now, nobility, mm -hmm. not royalty, is a big difference. Yes. People get those two confused. You can be a nobleman, but you don't. Ne that doesn't necessarily mean you're royalty. Right. You're not going to get to the crown, but you could still be a nobleman, right? But you right. know, I would I would have to create titles for myself and under sure. the under the sphere of acting, like I was the royal this or the royal that, you know, because I was working right under the under the Spanish king, kind of like that. So I try to I started to amend my character as like a to become a a, a, a Polish ambassador to the Spanish court, which was plausible because it was they both followed Catholicism, like that, right? And, and so then I started to to. Now I've become a Polish character, and then my dad goes, "Do you, you remember when you were younger?" And I, I, I built that, that. He took a model of the Lone Ranger up on silver, right, rearing up, and he copied out of a picture out of a, a, an old book of a winged hussar. It was a Polish right. campaign poster from World War Two, right? A recruiting poster, and uh, uh, I have it up here on my shelf somewhere. Uh, he he converted this Lone Ranger model into a winged hussar. The That's guy amazing. on the horse, and he had these wings on his back, and and with the lance and the lance pennant and everything. I, and he goes, "You remember that?" And I said, "Yeah." He goes, "That's your ancestry." Their yeah. suit of armor, too, right? Well, from the waist up, yeah. They, from they the waist up, yeah. yeah. So, so he he started to try and get me as much research information as he could. Um, again, there, there really wasn't that much as the internet was starting to come in. There, there it was very limited in, in the English language. You yeah. know, to find anything like that. And I didn't read Polish fluently enough to go looking through European websites or Polish websites. You could get you could find pictures, you could download pictures and cut them out and put them in a scrapbook like that. But I, I couldn't I didn't have anything in English. Yeah. You know, but little by little, uh, uh, I would find, OK, there's this book that's in Polish and English that this lady wrote about the wing who stars. And then it was this. And it was this. so I'd start to gather as much information as I could. And um the next thing would be to try and, and put together a, a character of some kind with this, uh, this uh, the armor. There's no place you can in the United States to get that kind of armor. It, it's it would be super impossible to afford. Sure. And, and when armorers in the United States are not that well versed with that kind of European armor, I mean they could make Roman armor that was easy, uh, uh, but Polish armor was very specific like that, the way it was designed. It's based off of Roman anima armor, meaning that 
the 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 uh, under the breastplate were other these other plates that when you lean forward they would flex in and out like that. So you can, so you you can, can move. You could bend over, yeah, like that. Yeah. Um, and the and the back plate didn't really move that much, uh, but there were there were mounting points to put these wings on. So my dad was was uh, uh, he was the director of heraldry for the Polish Nobility Association Foundation out of Baltimore. And he said there was a museum tour that came over from Poland. It was a combination of like several different Polish museums, all under one one theme, one roof. He, and he went to see this thing in Baltimore at the museum there. He says it's coming out to California. He goes, I'm telling you, you got to see this. Uh, he says they got the winged armor. I said, and and wow. did did you did you get close to it? He goes, yeah. I said, did you touch it? He goes, well, you're not supposed to because you have, have acid on your skin. It could destroy it. Yeah. You, you touch the armor, you can get a fingerprint and a rust. Yeah. And so he goes, well, when nobody was looking, I did. I said, and? He goes, I was at one with our ancestry. I oh, said, what? Oh, hey, yeah, you go. That's, that's, one that's it. Yeah. yeah. That's it, right? Yeah. 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 So um, hmm. so the, the, the museum tour was coming out to the, the, the museum, museum of Art in San, San Diego. And I called up at the museum and I said, I'm doing research on the wing of SARS. I'd like to know if I can get one. There you go. There you go. Yeah. The wings on the back. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, like that. And and so I said, I'd like to do some research for this. I'm trying to find, figure out how the wings are attached to the back of the armor. I, we don't, I don't have access to that information. And and the person I spoke to said, well, it's a photography prohibited uh, ex exhibit. They don't want yeah. flash photography because a lot of this stuff is old on, on like right. that and i said all right well thank you anyway and i called my dad up in brooklyn and i, I told him what happened i don't know what happened after that about two days later i got a call from the curator from the museum in, in san diego says mr fox you've been granted special dispensation uh for your research and we're gonna wow. assign, we're gonna assign a docent to to take you around the exhibit and you can take pictures of whatever you want i was like oh awesome cool. fantastic cool. so i rent a car I'm doing like 90 miles an hour because it's the last day of the exhibit in San Diego before it goes back to Poland. I get down there and, and I, I sign, I sign in and they, 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 uh, they said, what do you want to see first? And so instead of going through the front of the exhibit all the way, around, I said, take me to where the armor is first. So we went through around the back way, you know, through against the, the, the flow and they took me and there's this huge room, this big hall, and there's uh, uh, a captured tent, an Ottoman Turkish tent. There's a real thing. It's not, not, not a make-believe. This is a, one of the real tents that, right. sub, that King Sobieski captured from the Turks at the, right. battle, at wow. the battle in Vienna. Right. Okay, which, which, held, which held back the Muslim invasion into Europe. Exactly, exactly. They were the heroes of that. Right. right. And there was like various giant paintings, uh, some of Sobieski's weapons. Were there? Uh, uh, there was a big picture of Czerniecki, uh, uh, uh another Polish uh, uh, general, uh, Hetman, like that. And and it's all this and this displays dummies of the armor, but there's no back plates. They had the wings mounted to these like these little elbows. They, they didn't have oh. a back plate, just a front plate, like that. But I'm here. I'm telling you, I stood in that doorway, and I'm taking all of this in, and I feel like the only way I could describe this is like if I wet my fingertips and stuck them in a socket. Yeah, it's like an electric shock went through me from my scalp all the way down to my feet. Yeah, you know, and and my eyes started to water up. Sure, you know, and and that's your I, history, huh? That's your history. 
Well, what I heard in my mind was I'm home. Yeah. You know, like like Charlton Heston does at the end of Planet of the Apes when he sees the Statue of Liberty. <laughs> yeah. and he looks he up and it's funny. But when he looks up the realization moment where he goes, I'm home. Yeah. I've been here the whole time. Yeah, and you didn't know. That's yep. what happened to me. It's, people said you what you had, what you experienced is an epiphany. Yeah. You know, it was like like a like a religious feeling, you know. And that's what I thought. And I says to myself, when this museum exhibit closes and goes back to Poland. It's going to be gone. No one's going to remember this. I said, I got to put something together to keep the memory here mm. so that people will not forget what what contribution this brought to the table in Polish history. So I re took it on my own to recreate as best as I could from memory that exhibit. And and I got a, a 10 foot by 20 foot carport. You know, what you put it together with the pipes. Yeah. And I got fucking yards and yards of canvas and then i went to to fabric stores down in downtown la and i got the closest thing i could find that was resembling of of islamic t uh, patterns yeah you know I, I i can once you're hip to the frequency of what you're looking at it just comes to you naturally we've sure. seen we've seen these patterns in the background of every cowboy movie on the wallpaper okay it, it's it's just it, the, the certain uh, um Patterns that the Islam's Islamic people use in their textiles and in their culture that that repeat over and over again on their carpets, things like yeah. that. So, and I put this together and I built a ten foot by twenty foot tent that was supposed to recreate a captured tent from Vienna. I wound up getting some money together and got a, a suit of my first suit of armor. Uh, I made my own wings, which were not exactly like perfect, but they were close. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, and I built an encampment, and I started to to introduce this at Renaissance fairs. Why? Because it gave high visibility to that crowd, and now sure. I can I can start to try and help educate people as to the new player in town that's in the Renaissance circuit. And I I'm telling you, I ran against all kinds of ignorant, culturally ignorant, historically ignorant people making, you know, uh, um, really cutting remarks and. Like we to, I mean, you know, we had fur hats with a feather in it. You know, you wear you wear a long, uh, 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 like a coat called a jupon, which is a, a tunic. You know, and pe the, the people's lack of exposure to this kind of history. First thing out of the mouth is, "Who are you supposed to be, Vlad? Vlad the Impaler?" You know, because <laughs> you know it, it, it's it's totally different. You know, the the Balkans, uh, uh, the Slavic areas of of Central and Eastern Europe. That's all people see from movies. That's all they know. So it's not, I mean, even the the you know the Polish uh, uh, influence on our country in the American Revolution and things like that. That's not even taught. Okay? No, it's not. No, you know, uh, and and so I can understand how people just don't even the, know. The the father of American cavalry is is Casimir Pulaski. Right. Okay. Uh, he came over from, from Europe at the behest of Benjamin Franklin to mm -hmm. help Washington's wow. army. Right. And it got to be so frustrating for him because he's, he's like, by the book, by the book, by the book, this is how we do it. And he was rubbing people the wrong way. The, the other American officers were getting pissed off at him because they didn't want to do it by the book his way. So he, he resigned his, his uh, military ranking and and be, created the, his own Pulaski regiment, 
And he wound up pulling Washington's ass out of the fire a couple of times. A couple of times, that's right. Like that until until at the Battle of Savannah, he took a cannonball in the leg. Yeah, and that was a fatal wound. He died so shortly after that. Right. But, but you know, uh, everything subsequently that we know about cavalry fighting in the United States was introduced by Pulaski. Pulaski, right? Including, including you know, all, every time you see a John Wayne film and the cavalry is charging with the the sabers, the, uh, yeah. the, char the charge of cold steel, that all came from Pulaski. Mm -hmm. Now, if you, I connected the dots, Pulaski's relatives, his older relatives, fought with Sobieski at the Battle of Vienna. So essentially, what Pulaski was introducing to the United States was descended down the lines from the Wing Hussars and That's the Polish amazing. cavalry. That's so, amazing. If you want to connect the dots, everything we know about Polish cavalry came from the Wing Hussars. Wow. So people, people need to know this fact. This is why I was out of rock and roll for a little over a decade. I was doing a lot of research yeah. and, and studying and, and trying to put together uh, literature, be it in flyers or whatever, that we could give out as handouts to people at these, these events. And eventually from Renaissance fairs, I'm telling you, it's just as bad as the rock scene with the drama and the ego and the backstage. Oh, yeah. Yep. Yep. So we started doing military timelines. So what that is is like it's it's uh, military history from like ancient Rome to the Gulf War. Right. But we had a niche. We were like perfect. We had an era of history that nobody was representing. And every time somebody would come and see us, they'd be like, "Wow, what the hell is this?" That's amazing. You know. So I, I like to think that we brought something of worth and value to the table culturally and historically. And we wound up winning a lot of awards in the process. Yeah, you know, I, I wanted to meet the Pope and get a get a, a papal blessing because at the time the Pope, was, the Pope was yeah, Pope John Paul, yeah, right. But he died, so that didn't happen. Right, and, and I got I'm figuring, okay, how else can I get this message out to the English speaking world? Because this is big in Europe. This this yep. is as big in Europe to the Europeans as the Civil War reenactments are to people in America. Right. Okay, it's it's that big, but people in America don't know about that. So uh, subsequently, uh, I get a, a call one day out of the blue from this production company out of Toronto, in Canada, and and what they have is a there's a cable TV show called Museum Secrets. But what they do is That's they a go great to show. they go yeah yes. they go to museums yeah. around the world and they <laughs> see stuff that, that's out of the ordinary and they go what's what tell us about that what's that all about what's that. And they, they went to the museum in Moscow, the, the Art Museum of Art in Moscow, and they saw some wing hussar armor in a, in a display case. Now, that was not captured. Poland never lost like that to, 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 to uh, Russia. Yeah. You know, so it had to be like stolen from like during World War II. Sure. But anyway, they had some of the armor and one wing in a display case, and they asked the woman about that, and she explained it to them. So when they came back to the to the North American continent, they told me they, they did a, a search all through the internet looking for somebody who could explain this to them. And there's a couple other reenactor groups on the East Coast. Not on our not on the level we did it, but they they did a good a, a good job. Anyway, they said we contacted all these people and you seem to be like the go-to guy. Can we can we come to you and, and film? Can you, can you, we want to talk about the wings. Do they make a noise? And we want to talk about the weapons. I said, sure. So we, we worked out a deal uh, and, and they couldn't afford to fly their whole 
film crew to California. So it was the producer and his sister, the producer and director, and they hired a local crew. But they, t- they usually shoot over the space of a week. We, they didn't have that kind of time in the budget. We had to condense everything into one day. So right. we didn't get a chance to do cover all the weapon like that. So um, so we, we came to our ranch in Equidulce, and we had a nice windy day. And, and yes, sometimes the feathers do make a noise under the right circumstances. It's hit or miss. But it's not loud enough to 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 scare the enemy's horses to hear right. on a battle. You got cannons, you got muskets. Yeah, you're not gonna You're not gonna hear wings. But yeah. the feathers vibrate up and down like like on a Venetian blind in the wind. It was it was an, it was an image thing, right? Really, more just the idea of these winged armored people coming at you. Shock, was, shock and awe. Shock and awe. That was what it was supposed to be. So, right. Psychological. When you see a bunch of guy in wings, you fucking run. Demons. <laughs> well, it, it automatically, visually, it automatically doubled what, what you look like. So if 150 yeah. guys look like 300. Sure. Yeah. I know. can see that and with the wingspan. Course, depending on who you talk to, people in Poland say, well, the Tartars would lasso the riders off the horse with, with the rope. And then the, with the when the rope would go over the wings, it pulled the wings off and the rider's still on the horse. That, so it depends who you talk to, what the purpose of the wings were for. We've gone around and around and around with this with a lot of researchers. Uh, they didn't always wear the wings. Their reputation preceded them when they didn't have to. Um, mm-hmm. Early on, they, they, had, they wore the wings on the backs of the saddles like that. Some had one, some had two. Uh, the, the Polish Hussars had them, the Lithuanian Hussars had them like that. And, and so, uh, but, but to have this resplendent display of these wings arching over your head, you know, it would scare the hell out of the enemy's horses. You know, and if you could, you could cause a rout, then everybody's going to run, and you just what you do is just run them down. You know, like that, mm-hmm. cause a cause a rout, and then uh, um, so they mic'd me, and we were trying to listen for playbacks for the wings, and we couldn't hear anything. So unfortunately, that that didn't happen uh, on that day. And then so we we uh, we shot some footage with the lance because the lances were the the, main, the only weapon supplied by the king. They were like 18 feet long and they were hollow. Now, mine's made out of PVC because I don't have, I can't keep da- damaging lances over and over. And I don't have an assembly line. But it was, it was uh, a, a wooden dowel and they would cut it in half and they would gouge it out and hollow it. Then they'd put it back together and glue it and wrap it with silk thread. Yeah. Now, when you're, you're charging on a horse and you're holding an 18 foot lance, that thing's going to wobble. It's hollow. Sure. So I'm trying to. I never got a chance to ask the riders in Poland how did they stop it from wobbling? Because you gotta you gotta nail a guy in the chest with that thing. You gotta get it in the right the right moment of, of the, the tip of the lance going up and down. Yeah, like this, you know. Uh, so I had to build some straw dummies, display dummies, and stuff them full of straw, and I would charge across the field at like at a trot, and and I'd stick the, the lance into the and then let go. Like that, because it wouldn't it wouldn't break. These lances yeah. were designed. The lances were designed to shatter on impact. So when they hit a guy in the breastplate, the whole thing would just shatter and be like like wooden shrapnel, and it would drive him and everybody behind him back, like that. You know, and they create holes and be a route like that. Yeah. So so we did that. You know, and like that. So I had to train. My wife helped a lot. My wife did most of the training with me with the horses, uh, like that. But you know, I had to get my horse accustomed to the riding around with this. This you know almost eighteen foot PVC lance, like that, and what the th- one of the secrets is uh, around the, the pommel of the saddle is a leather strap that hangs down to your foot, 
and it forms a little leather cup. They call it a tuck. Uh, uh, like you can put your finger in it. Okay. What you did, the rider would put the back end of the lance in that. And that would give him stability so that when he charged, they would go from a walk to a trot to a canter to a charge in like moments. Yeah. Okay. And they would go from open rank to knee to knee, open rank, knee to knee like that. So it was hard to tell where they were going to hit you. And then as they got close enough, They'd all the, the order would be given, and they'd all lower the lances at the same time. So you had all these lances come down to you like that, and they got like this twelve foot pennant, silk pennant, snapping like a towel. Wow! So you got all this dazzling monstrosity going on. The, the guys on the ground, the horses—they don't know what the hell's coming at them. They see these guys in armor with these wings, with leopard leopard skin pelts on their shoulders. The horses would freak. They didn't know what it is coming at them. And then, so as you charge, you, you raise up the back end, and you get that tension from that leather strap in the back end of the lance, so that when you make impact, you got something to stop the back end of it. Yeah. Instead of, instead of it just going out of your hand like that. Yeah. And, and so little by little, we got to know more and more about the secrets of of how you know the, how the, the secrets to a, a hussar's charge. And that was all just because you had to reenact it, really. You know, you right. you, you, you reenact right. it all. Yeah. So, so we got this finally on on uh, on on, t t on tape. Uh, I say it's very it's very significant because it's the first time, to my knowledge, that the subject is covered in the English language for an English speaking audience, without bias and without uh, uh, anybody trying to poke fun or hu uh, humor at the Polish people. Because yeah. you know, I'm telling you, even at the military timelines. One of the things that you hear a lot of is that the Polish cavalry was so stupid in World War II they charged tanks. Charged tanks. It's horseback. That's that's not true. That didn't that, happen. That the Battle of Kroyanti, the Polish cavalry caught the German infantry napping, in in, in between the trees and in the grove, right. and and they they slung rifles and their bayonets were like I don't know, you know almost two two and a half feet long. And they, they pulled their bayonets like a sword, like a sword. And of course the officers had their sabers and whoever else had sabers. And they did a charge of cold steel and they, they overran the German position, which was very embarrassing to the Germans. Sure. Now at that time, Poland had like state of the art anti-tank guns. So it was not like they had to charge tanks with horses. They didn't need to do yeah. that. They, they, they pretty much, they fucked up the Germans that day, but that's not going to sit great with the officers in the high command. So you yeah. got beat by a bunch of Polish cavalry. What's wrong with you guys? The next day they came back with mechanized. Right. And, and of course, they saw, and, and the Italian press was there. Yeah. They, this is the story. They saw obviously Polish uh, cavalry guys on the ground dead. They saw some dead horses here and there got shot and they went, Oh, so they charged the tanks. The Germans never, never won to let go of a good, promo and went yeah, yeah that's exactly, yeah, that's, what happened. that's exactly what happened it's like it propaganda. propaganda exactly so that's propaganda. what happened because i researched the battle no i've, 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 I've read, read this it. exactly it's what you said I've, I've read that so this, these are things these are forms of ignorance that i had to deal with i gotta yeah. bite my tongue i gotta bite my lip instead of getting angry at these people i, I you gotta educate them you know you, you can't be can't be pissed off all the time no, you, know? I mean, you gotta true. be able to get them get them to hold still long enough to explain what really happened well rick i'm gonna have to wind things down now you've been a fantastic guest there you go and one last question i just 
got to know, are you working on a book? Because if anybody needs to write a book, it's you. That's yeah. funny you can say that. I started a book many years ago. And it, I, I, you know, I can't, it's hard for me to edit myself and, and be disciplined enough to sit down every day and work on it. Yeah. It's going it, to, in order to understand who I am today, I have to explain who I was yesterday. And there is some there is some cathartic stuff in that book that I had to go through that is is was traumatic. Uh, it was it was uh, some of it was se sexually traumatic, uh, you know, with my experience with the nuns in, in, in parochial school in Greenpoint. OK, uh, like that. Yeah, I got I got molested by by my third grade nun. Wow. Not the priest, a nun. Wow. So so these are things that I've I've held in. Over the years, and I, I, I know I got to get this out of my system, you know. So I have I have to explain a lot of stuff that happened to me in my youth, which sets me up for later and later in life. Um, I, I'm I just finished JJ French's book, Twisted Business. Um, I'm still reading. I'm finishing up uh, Bob Daisley's book, For Fact's Sake. So I'm I'm trying to see on how my contemporaries and my peers how they write their books, you know, because I got a lot of information in here. That's that's going to be take a lot to, to absorb for the average reader. You I know? mean, you could you could write a book just about the military stuff you're talking about, but yeah, I mean, you know, the, but I mean, a, a bio, you know, an autobiography is is to me just from everything you've talked about for the last two hours. I think it's in order. You, you Has need it been to that long? <laughs> yeah, it's been about two hours, and I can go and I could go another two, but the program can't. So. We're gonna uh, <laughs> I'm, I'm, I have a tendency to be long-winded, but there's no, not at all. You were fantastic. Um, it was very good. That, when, 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 when he was when he was alive, my dad said, "Write a book. Use a lot of pictures, and you don't have to say a lot." You know, <laughs> the book would but be the like military stuff was fascinating, man. Yeah. Mind, wow, I never knew that. I'm, I'm gonna look that up now. I mean, between between. I'd have to put pictures in. And if I put pictures in, then I have to explain what the picture's about. So the book's going to be real big. <laughs> you got a lot to say, man. Part one and part two. Yep. So, all right. So thank you, Rick Fox, thank for coming you. on the Rocker Mike and Rob Present Show. Thank you very much. Fantastic. Fantastic interview, man. Let me do my Keanu Reeves. There you go. <laughs> that is something that we we say at the end of every show. What is it, Rob? We don't get drunk, but we get, we get lumped, lumped up. up. And we'll <laughs> see you soon. And thank you, Rick Fox. Nice to talk Friday. to New York again. Yes. Yeah. You guys you guys stay safe out there. You got crazy people running that state. That, that's true. You take care. Yeah. All right. Thanks for having me, guys. Have a good one. All right. Bye-bye. Podcast you will hear that will be music to your ears. You'll learn about bands you love or may not know, and it's only here on the rock.
Let's get lumped up on the rock show.